On this week's Devils in the Details, we discuss all things Sofyan Amrabat, from strengths and weaknesses to where he's likely to fit into United's squad going forward. We also do a brief segment about Sergio Reguilón and what we can expect from his time at United. Finally, we discuss what United's situation looks like at right wing going forward this season, with Anthony having been suspended and question marks looming around Jaden Sancho's future. Aaron, how have you been? How's your week gone? It has been a roller coaster, but it's been fun today to take a watch of some Amrabat tape and hopefully arrive with some excitement. I think we're both really excited about this signing and have wanted it to happen for a number of weeks. Um, and so we're excited to talk about it, and that will make my week all the better. Hopefully uh, <laughs> hopefully we can have a fun time discussing something positive. Um, all right, so yeah, let's let's get straight into it. Amrabat, obviously, joining from Fiorentina in Serie A, who finished 8th last season. Uh, He also, I think, is probably best known amongst listeners from his performances with Morocco uh, at last year's World Cup, where Morocco, obviously, famously made a run deep into the tournament. And he was arguably, well, he was objectively Morocco's pivotal player because he played as a single pivot in a 4-5-1 formation. But you could also make the argument he was their most important player, Uh, Aaron kind of sets us up nicely to discuss the first thing I think we want to talk about, which is his role, right? His role both at Fiorentina and uh, with Morocco for the national team. So do you want to sort of take one of those? Yeah, so starting with Morocco, I think this is how he became known to the general public. He played as a single defensive midfielder in a 4-5-1. And what that meant was he was the deepest midfielder both in and out of possession. Um, I think most people would have watched Morocco in the knockout stages, And their knockout stage run was mainly constituted by them defending deep for long stretches of matches and then trying to either um, maintain spells of possession, of deep possession, uh, when they won the ball back or to spring attacks forward. And Amrabat was key to both of those things. He's a very press resistant midfielder and he leverages risk a lot in his role in possession in that he very much uh, makes decisions as to whether he should progress or circulate the ball with the objective of keeping possession and putting his team in the best position possible to maintain possession of the ball. Um, And that's where I think the links come to Fiorentina. Um, Fiorentina, he does the same. He's the deepest link, or sorry, he's the deepest midfielder in possession. uh, And his role mainly constitutes receiving the ball in buildup and timing Fiorentina's progression through the thirds. Fiorentina are one of the highest possession sides in Serie A, and Amrabat is their key possession midfielder, and so that tells you enough about his style. He gets on the ball a lot in matches. He completes the vast majority. He's like a 90-plus percentile pass accuracy player. He's like an 85-plus percentile progressive passer of the ball, and he's also a high-proficiency carrier of the ball. Um, I wouldn't say he's like a disruptive dribbler. We'll get into that later. The difference between these two roles is mainly out of possession I think for Morocco he's like a traditional number six out of possession he's going to be their deepest midfielder they're going to play in a tight low block and he's going to be between two banks of four in that four five one and basically be the spare man um, in their marking and try to get uh, try to prevent the other team from creating overloads 
Morocco played Spain and Portugal notably in these knockout stages, and both teams overload midfield a lot. And so Amrabat's role was probably pretty much to prevent those overloads um, and prevent them from being damaging to Morocco's back four. Whereas for Fiorentina, uh, they actually play a high press, and Amrabat is one of the leading members of their press, so he's not actually their deepest midfielder out of possession. He's going to step up, follow the opposition. I'd say most of the matches we've watched him in, and most most teams in Italy play a three-man midfield uh, with a single pivot, and so his role is going to be to follow the second midfielder, similar to Christian Eriksen and what he does for United, and follow them into their own third or in uh, his team's case, the final third, and try to prevent passes into that player that are used commonly to get teams going and build up. Um, and so that's a really odd role, because sometimes you see Amrabat as the aggressor in the press, the midfielder getting very far forward, whereas sometimes, uh, in, in Morocco's case, you see him sitting back and having to time transitions. Uh, but either way, the key facet of his game is that he's the guy who you're going to look to and build up to secure the ball for your side, and to get it up the pitch um, with the right timing and accuracy of a top team, of a top possession team. So that's all very interesting. I think there, I agree, obviously. I think his his greatest strength by far is what he offers on the ball in the first two-thirds as your deepest midfielder in build-up. And that's very important. We'll get to that later. But I think a lot of people, again, I think a lot of people listening, probably most of the football they've seen him play was at the World Cup in that 4-5-1 where he's, you know, this sort of shuttle player between two banks of four. You have um, Morocco's two wingers and their other two midfielders forming one line of four, and you have their back four forming another line of four, and he sort of sits in between that already deep four, you know, the the formations of a 4-4-2 block, but instead of having two up top, you have one up top, and you drop Amrabat in between those two banks of four. That's a very traditional defensive midfield role. I think a lot of people who saw him play in that role, they think, or their perception is that Amrabat is a a defensive-minded player that really the the root of his game is what he does out of possession. And what what, what would you say to that, Aaron? Because I didn't get that impression from what you said. Yeah, I wouldn't say that's the case. Um, I wouldn't say that Amrabat is not a defensively focused midfielder. Um, I think an accurate description of his game would be that he operates deep in the pitch or most of his impact occurs in deeper areas of the pitch. Um, But I think it's easy to confuse that with the impact being defensive, whereas I think Amrabat's main involvements in the game are in possession and getting his team into positions in the final third. Um, So it's less a disagreement about the role he played or the role he could play, and more a disagreement about maybe where the strengths that he actually has lie, um, which are primarily when the ball is at his feet, Um, and he's under pressure. Yeah, I think I agree with that based on what I've seen. Uh, I would get a little more specific. There's sort of, you know, in very broad strokes, two aspects to out-of-possession impact. There's how you execute the game mentally, uh, you know, decision-making, where you choose to be uh, based on different pressing schema, rest defense, concepts we talk about often on this podcast. And then there's the physical side, um, and then I guess there's actually technically a third, which is the technical side. Your, your tackling ability, how you execute tackles, um, things like that. But I want to focus on the second one, which is physical here. I think a big question about Amrabat and, and a key sort of variable that's going to influence how impactful he can be for United 
is his physical level. So, you know, it, let's just give some examples here so people can conceptualize this in their mind. You have an elite uh, Premier League midfielder physically. Um, Declan Rice, I think, is a good example of that. He's somebody who's physically elite at Premier League level. Uh, and then you've got somebody who's, you know, fifth percentile physically as a midfielder in the Premier League. Um, take your pick. Uh, Aaron, do you have somebody who comes to mind? I think Erickson's a good example for United fans. Yeah, I think Erickson, I don't know if he's fifth percentile, but he's certainly, you know, very, very low on the physicality scale for a Premier League midfielder. At, at this stage of his career. At this stage in his career. Think about those two players. 95th percentile, fifth percentile, theoretically. Aaron, where would you say Amrabat falls sort of on this physical scale? And, and what do you think that tells us? I think this is the hardest thing to be able to figure out about Amrabat. And I think it's going to be, as as you said to me earlier, I think it's going to be a big driver of just how successful he is at Premier League level. Um, another thing that blurs this line is, and this is what I kind of thought you were going to bring up, is that there are two aspects to out-of-possession play, I'd say tactically. There's pressing, uh, which is the act of trying to win the ball back. And there's defending, which is the act of trying to prevent the opponent from being able to create chances. And... What I would say is for Morocco, Amrabat's primary responsibility was the defending, whereas for Fiorentina, his primary responsibility out of possession is the pressing. Um, and it's interesting. I, I want to I I change slightly how you're phrasing this, because I would say pressing is defending. So I think let's, let's call these two things holding versus pressing. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, I, either which way. I mean, I think the main point here is that Amrabat has done both um, in the last year of his career um, and he's done both at, in, at the highest level um, and I don't think he has been, I don't think he has proven himself to be, you know a Casemiro level defender or, or holder if you will, and I don't think he's proven himself to be a mount level presser for example um, but I do think that he has been able to carry out the responsibilities of both roles as asked. And so I think in the context of the Premier League, my safe answer is that that puts him in somewhere in like the 50 to 65 percentile range of physicality of athletes in the Premier League. He's average to above average. Um, and if he turns out to be better than that, I think that's a sign he's going to be very, very good at Premier League level. If he turns out to be worse than that, I think that means he's still going to be useful, but his impact as a top, top-notch midfielder, like your, you know, comparable position, your Rodri's, your, I don't know, your Rice's, your your other big defensive midfielders in the Premier League, is going to be limited. Yeah, so just so everyone's clear who's listening, that was me shirking off the responsibility of having to <laughs> guess where Amrabat lands physically. Because I, I, like, I agree with you, Aaron. I think this is the hardest thing to figure out and I also think it is perhaps the most important thing as a result the most the sort of the x factor the key variable uh that answer, that tells you how impactful Amrabat can be because like you said if he's sort of below average which I think is very unlikely I, do, I think this is at least an average in terms of physicality midfielder in the Premier League if he's more on that end you've got a rotation player who I think you're gonna have trouble using in certain matches definitely not going to want to use him as the lone defensive midfielder in a pressing system. Because again, I, I want to emphasize this. Though he has experience as a holding midfielder, which is to say the deepest midfielder out of possession, the international football 
landscape is so different. And that is only more true in knockout ties in major tournaments. Morocco enjoyed, I think, 24% possession against Spain in the round of 16 last year, 26% possession against Portugal in the quarterfinal. And I would be surprised if it was more than 35% against France, though I don't have that number in front of me um, in the semifinal. Why is that relevant? Morocco played in this deep block, uh, overwhelmingly. Sometimes it was a mid-block, but for the most part, the key key aspect here is not the, the line height, and it's more how small the spaces were between Morocco's defenders, and they were very small. Uh, and I bring this up because essentially what it does, what that does is it simplifies the role of every defensive-minded player in the team. It makes it a lot easier to play center back. It makes it a lot easier to play as a defensive midfielder in certain ways. Uh, and specifically, it means you have to think less about covering ground because you have a very defined space that you have to just win duels in and be available in. So it sort of makes, you know, the, the cardiovascular aspect of, of physicality, the, the ground covering aspect of physicality, less strenuous. And then the other thing is positional mistakes are less punished. Uh, so it's harder to tell when a player has made a positional mistake because they're covering less ground. It is easier for them to cover up those mistakes, which is all to say, bringing it back. If Amrabat is a 50th percentile athlete, you know, median average in the Premier League, I think he's going to have a lot of trouble playing in that deeper role for a pressing side like United. If he's more like 60th, 65th percentile, you know, a real value added out of possession midfielder. Uh, in terms of his physicality, I think he can play that role. And then I think it lets you get more creative with your usage of Casemiro. You can use Casemiro less, or you can use Casemiro differently um, in a way that I think could benefit the side. So I think that's the big question that Aaron and I cannot answer from our watching. And I think it's good to kind of open up with that, because then we can get into the things that we definitely can't answer. Sorry, Aaron, go ahead. Yeah, so a fun actual fact is that Morocco had 62% possession in their World Cup semifinal match with France. Okay, but that's because they went behind early. No, I know. I know that's why, and it doesn't really change your point whatsoever. Just thought it was interesting. Um, Yeah, I think what's going to become clear from the rest of this episode is that Amrabat has very, very high upside in possession, in particular, what he can offer in the deeper areas of the pitch in possession. Um, and it's something that United have been missing for a very long time. The reason why we add this caveat is because we have seen examples of players like this who have added a lot of value in that area, but perhaps struggled to really contribute in the final third or as an athlete in defensive phases. And because of that, their impact is limited because even though they offer this one really rare, really valuable thing at a very high level, the rest of their game is just not quite um, at the level required for them to be an overall massive net positive for for, for good teams. Um, I think to a lesser extent, that's what we've seen with Ericsson. I don't think Ericsson has the press resistance of a player like Amrabat. Uh, But I think with Erickson, a lot of what we've seen is he does a lot of very good things, um, but because of his lack of athleticism, his attacking impact is a little bit handicapped. Um, His defensive impact is very, very limited. And as a result, you have, I would say, a good but not a starter for a top team midfielder at Premier League level. Um, And I think that how good Amrabat is as an athlete is something that's going to strongly drive how much he can actually contribute 
to a starting role in this team. And it's something that we haven't been able to figure out because he's playing in less physical situations than the Premier League. He's playing in less tactically diverse situations than in the Premier League. And he's playing in different roles depending on the side that he plays for, uh, which makes this a little bit complicated. Makes it a bit complicated, but it also gives you uh, a little more context because you can say, these are different situations. I can see how he reacts to these different situations. Maybe that lets you kind of triangulate his physicality. For us, it hasn't so well. And for what it's worth, I mean, I think you need to watch a lot of a player to get an idea of how good they actually are defensively. Um, And we've probably now each watched a double-digit amount of Amrabat matches, I want to say. And what I'll say is I think most of his defensive game is predicated upon making good decisions. Um, I think in particular you'll see a lot of him following what look like explicit tactical instructions in either role that he's in. And then the defensive weakness you'll see is not that he's not athletic enough to get there, but that sometimes his athletic limitations will result in him having to foul instead of having to, um, instead of being able to tackle to win the ball back or hold off and force the pass back. Um, And I guess... I use that as a practical example because it might turn out that something like that maps to him fouling a lot more in the Premier League, which is going to lead to him getting a lot more cards in the Premier League. Now, that's obviously not as bad he's as... He's already a prolific fouler. He already fouls a lot. Um, and so I know a lot of defensive midfielders foul a lot, right? That's part of the game. Um, and it's less of a problem if he can tread the line enough that he limits his fouling or he limits the amount of cards he gets or he limits the areas in which he's committing fouls. I guess it's all three of those, right? It's you don't want to commit too many fouls. Uh, you don't want to give the opposition high percentage chances to score from your fouls. And you don't want to get cards such that you can no longer foul if you have to in a match, um, which will lead to him getting subbed early in a lot of matches. Um, and so I think that's that's a tangible example of why his physicality is so important. Um, the other thing I'll say about his defensive ability is that His attacking impact is virtually non-existent from what I've seen. He's not going to be box crashing. He's not going to be um, taking amazing shots. He's not going to be creating massive chances. He can occasionally create a chance of the good pass, but it's not like you you can expect multiple shots a game off Amrabat's attacking contributions. Um, And so that makes his defensive impact even more important because... Like I said, you've got defensive, you've got possession ability, you've got attacking. If you're not going to offer much in the attacking area, then you have to offer something positive in the defensive area to be a top midfielder at this level, I think. Um, yeah, I think that's all yeah, I got I for this. I think that's a good point. I think that's, I think that's well put. Only thing I'm going to add on his athleticism, and then I think we should move on from the athleticism, is you mentioned Ericsson's press resistance and how Amrabat is more press resistant than Ericsson. I'll say this. I think Amrabat is one of the most press-resistant midfielders I'm aware of in the top level of the sport in Europe. Um, I think an aspect of that, not the main aspect, but an aspect of that is athleticism. I think any midfielder who's very press-resistant usually has some aspect of athleticism that they're leaning on to resist the press. Um, I think he's a very comfortable with contact uh when he's on the ball uh i think he's also he has functional uh 
functional, you know, agility and acceleration to get away from players. And, and so in that way, I think you can see like clear demonstration of athleticism. However, and now, now this is me transitioning us away from athleticism because I think we've talked enough about it. The, I think the key aspect of why he's so press resistant and he really is very, very press resistant is he's scanning a lot, like a lot. Yeah. I know this is kind of like a thing that you see tacticos talk about, like, oh, scanning his scans per 90, random stuff like that. That is meaningless. In the context of receiving the ball under pressure with players behind you and turning, scanning is so, so important. And you, you can really see that he knows where opposition players are and simply evades them through that. Um, so I think, I think that's just worth noting, worth throwing out there, because I think this is a huge aspect of why he is so, so good at playing on the half turn and so difficult to dispossess. I love this point because it's often very difficult to pinpoint what makes um, what makes a player really good in build up. Uh, the a really good example is I think if you go back to this podcast in January, uh, United signed Marcel Sabitzer on loan on deadline day to replace Erickson. Um, Erickson had gotten injured, and I came on the podcast and said, you know, I don't think he's gonna be he's gonna be a downgrade on Erickson. How big it or sorry, how big of a downgrade it is really depends on his ability to join United's build-up and be able to play through it. I probably said something to that effect. And honestly, I probably underestimated how how important that was. Because what I often saw with someone like Sabitzer was that the key difference between him and Erickson uh, was not the ability to actually make the pass. It was the ability to scan and position correctly to actually have the ball come into your feet and create that time and space to be able to pick out the pass, um, which is something that Erickson's very good at. The part that Erickson's not very good at is actually resisting um, contact or pressure from opposition players. He buckles under pressure. That's where Amrabat comes in. So Amrabat is really, really good at um, picking the right position, um, like micro-adjustments in his positioning, so that he's in the exact perfect spot to give him the most time he can possibly have on the ball before having to face an opposition player directly. Then he's very good at receiving and defeat, and when he's receiving, like Kay says, you'll always see him scanning his back. Um, and so what this does is it creates um, it creates more time because he's able to adjust how he receives the ball and what position he's in so that he has more time on the ball. That's the first. That's the first element of press resistance that you can't really quantifying the stats there are some ways that you can see this in data but it's very it's much more difficult than to just see it watching someone like Amrabat play and what this is going to allow him to do is then take the ball on the turn and he has a level of physicality that allows him to sort of uh create some separation between him and a marker and then he can play on the half turn so off a big thing you'll see in his game is he'll receive the first touch is a turn to get it in even a remotely forward facing direction and then the second or third touch is a pass out of pressure or a diagonal or even sometimes a positive line-breaking pass uh, straight through the middle of the pitch. And I don't think it's necessarily that he's a spectacular passer. I think he's a very good passer. But what it really is, is it's these little elements of his mental game that allow him to create time and space uh, for himself that make his passing look better. Um, And I think that's a really important distinction to make. Because a lot of people might load up like passing comps of 
Amrabat, and they won't see some crazy actions. Like, Casimir and Bruno are a great example of this. They, they can make crazy passes that Amrabat can't make. Uh, but his ability to actually use the space around him and have a good understanding of what's going on around him makes him a very good first phase midfielder on the ball. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. I'd add two things. As for the press resistance, I think that another difference between him and Erickson is in the context of, you you said, you know, Erickson's always scanning. Erickson's always picking good spots to pick up the ball. It's also true of Amrabat. Another key difference between the two of them is Amrabat's, and I, I, I can't believe I'm bringing it back to athleticism again, but I am. Amrabat's athleticism allows him to take up less conservative spaces such that Interesting. he can receive the ball in a sort of more, uh, a, a position that if he were Erickson would actually be dangerous because Erickson wouldn't have the athleticism to perhaps take a touch beyond a defender, bait someone in, and then release. Um, but also has greater upside because he does have to have the athleticism to receive in that position and then do that. Take a touch past a, past a defender, play, you know, just take more positive touches and then beat a defender to those positive touches. Erickson, I think, is aware of his athletic limitations. And so... When he's just receiving in those deep areas, he's really looking for a ton of space where he can pick up his head, look around, find his spot. Otherwise, he's just going to return the ball to sender. Um, And so I think that's another difference. Other thing I would add, you mentioned passing ability. And I think it's it's good that you mentioned that because I think it's something we should touch on a little bit. Amrabat is an incredibly talented passer. uh, Very precise with the ball. The reason I think you're right to say that Bruno and Casemiro have greater um, Bruno and Casemiro have greater passing impact it has more to do with their risk tolerance, which I think is disproportionately high. Uh, I think both of them, in particular Casemiro, given his role, play too many balls over the top uh, and try to create too much. Amrabat, on the other end of the spectrum, but I think healthily especially given his role and what this, this United side needs, almost never takes creative risk with his passing. He'll play long diagonals and they will be right on the money, but that is really all you're ever going to see in terms of trying to play a Hollywood pass. He'll play between the lines, but they're almost never going to be you know, attempting to assist somebody running in over the top um, or playing a long threaded through ball for, for a man uh, to be one-on-one with the goalkeeper. You're not going to see that from him. And I think that has more to do with decision-making than it does with passing talent. Yeah, for the most part, I agree. I mean, I think maybe Bruno and Casemiro are are muddy examples. But I do think there are other midfielders in Europe who can also make very good decisions and then also have more passing ability in their locker than someone like Amrabat. Um, Agreed. I think yeah. Enzo Fernandez Enzo Fernandez is a great is example. A great and that's fine. I'm not really expecting United to get that from a 10 million euro loan. I think it's just worth noting that um, the reason why him not being an elite passer, I think he's a very, very, very good passer. The reason him not being one of the best passers in football is not preventing him from being, I think, one of the most press resistant midfielders in football. Um, one of the best at getting the ball forward is because of these intangible or not intangible, but um, harder to quantify aspects of his mental game that allow him to get on the ball in areas where he is favored to make the passes that he can make, which are still a lot of different passes. 
Yeah, and and then the last thing I would add on this issue is, I think he has, I think he is calmer on the ball in these deep areas than Casemiro is, and as a result, he, I, I think he's a better passer between the lines. Yeah, because he's not rushed. I think when Casemiro is facing forward with the ball, looking at a set defense, you'll often see him make technical mistakes or you'll see him make conservative choices. And that I think has more to do with composure than anything else. I don't think it's a true difference in technical ability between them. Amrabat does not have that at all. Um, Yeah, that's what I've got on that issue. Yeah, I'll add one more thing in terms of Amrabat's press resistance. I think there is one weakness here that we found, um, and it's that occasionally the ball does get trapped under his feet in these situations. So I think the best picture to draw here is uh, he'll be receiving from the center backs and there will be one or even two midfielders on his back. Um, And sometimes what he likes to do is let the ball roll right into him so that he doesn't even need to take a touch. He can just turn um, and then he can just turn, get on the ball, take a touch forward and then play, which is a really nice idea. Um, the thing I'd say is that he has good close control, not like amazing, like Frankie Diong level close control. I think he also, um, occasionally he'll scan and then he'll let the ball roll into him a lot. Um, uh, but then he'll have contact on his back. And in those situations, sometimes the, f- the ball can get stuck under his feet. He can stop the ball and then he has a little bit of trouble from the position that he stops it in to actually get it out of his body and into someone else. Um, I saw him lose the ball, I think, once from that in a lot of the watches that we did. But there were also a couple of flimsy passes that I think he completed, but they didn't look convincing. Um, and so again, if the pressure is better in the Premier League, chances are this could be something that leads to him losing the ball a few times. Overall, I still think a very pressure midfielder, but probably something to keep an eye out for. Uh, agreed on that. I would add a few small caveats. First, I think this tendency is actually a net positive for him. I agree. In terms yeah, of yeah. his press resistance. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, he doesn't take loose, heavy touches, which is a much bigger issue in terms of being press resistant than the ball getting stuck directly under you. And I think he's also developed some technical quirks that allow him to deal with this. Like, it is a recurring thing. Aaron's right. We only saw it actually cost him and lose the ball once from it in our shared watching. Uh, But I saw, I've seen him get the ball stuck like that probably four or five times. And that was the only time it actually cost him. Uh, So I I don't think this is necessarily a, a really big danger given the kind of technician that he is. But like Aaron said, this is, this is the weakness. If there is a weakness in his game as, as a press resistant player, I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. I think we've covered everything in terms of, Really, I think we've covered most of it. Is there anything you think we're missing? No, I mean, maybe just a roundup. I think ultimately the keys are we've been talking a lot about a ball carrier, a press-resistant player in United's midfield. I think this is the closest thing we've seen to that guy being added in a very, very long time. Um, And in particular, I don't think he's going to be a super disruptive dribbler. I don't think you're going to see him dribbling past players a lot. But you're going to see him reading opportunities to carry into space and using them, which is something United's current midfielders, bar I'd say Mount, don't really do. Um, And I'd say Amrabat does it in deeper areas with more experience and more consistency than someone like Mount. Um, Overall, I think he's going to be 
the player that United need to help control some of the tempo issues that we've been talking about. When United are in leading positions, they're too desperate with the ball, trying to create. When they're in level positions, they can struggle to control games because of decision-making. I think Amrabat makes all of those issues better. He obviously can't prevent other players from making mistakes, but he adds a net level of positive decision-making that I think will be very good for United's midfield. Um, The concerns are he's not really going to make a big final third impact. I mean, if he goes and randomly scores five goals, I'll be happy, but I'm not really expecting it. Um, His role kind of muddies his out-of-possession ability, I think, as a player. But ultimately, I think the the blurred line here is his possession ability. Or sorry, his athletic ability, which you talked about for a lot at the start. And basically, what you're looking at is, if this is a player who proves he can perform well in athletic duels, um, in athletic situations at Premier League level, you're going to have a player who is a really strong starter for you at this level. If you don't, you're going to have a player who adds a lot tactically to your side, is a valuable rotation piece, but probably isn't the long-term starter for a title-winning team at Premier League level. Um, and I think with that, that's probably our overview on Amrabat. Yeah, so I agree. Aaron, where does he fit in? Good question. Um, we'll get into the right-wing situation later, but... I think the most likely option at this stage is that you're going to see Bruno move out wide and you're going to see Amrabat slot in for Mount and you're going to see Mount into Bruno's role. And I think this is going to make United a much better side in the aggregate, having Amrabat at defensive midfielder versus having any of the right wing options at right wing. Um, Having Mount leading the press, Bruno still gets the ball a lot in the final third. Casemiro still has... Uh, defensive, he still can have defensive impact. Ideally, what you'd like to see is Amrabat being the deepest midfielder in possession, and then Casemiro can get way further forward. Um, And then out of possession, Casemiro tracks back to be the deeper player. The other option is you could see Amrabat replacing Casemiro outright. Um, I think that option would be more in response to Casemiro's form over the first few weeks. Um... I'm not sure he's a direct replacement. I think there's there are things you're losing there and there are things you're gaining there. Um, would I say Casemiro at his best is a better player? Yes. Would I say Casemiro right now is the better player? No. Ideally, I think you play these two together. But as it stands, if Casemiro is going to continue with this current form, I think Casemiro is United's fourth best midfielder, which is where that option will be emerging from. Um Ultimately, I think the hope is that Casemiro finds his last season form and United go back to, or or United continue to use either Casemiro Mount Bruno or Casemiro Amrabat Mount with Bruno out wide or resting Mount in some games and going Casemiro Amrabat Bruno. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think I would just add in the, I would add in the context of opposition. I think Amrabat and Mount, specifically those two, basically always have to be playing if you are playing against a side that is going to press you high. Uh, I think in particular, Amrabat is key in that. So that's going to be your bigger matches. Um, Bruno is basically undroppable. So that makes Casemiro kind of the variable. So I think 
and this isn't, I totally agree with everything you just said about Casemiro. I think he's the better player if he's playing the way we've seen him play before. You're going to use him a lot this season. However, I definitely think in large, in bigger matches, you're going to play him with Amrabat and you're going to push Bruno out wide. And then you're going to have, you know, matches against sides that are going to sit in on you. And that's where the question becomes, what's your midfield combination? Um, do you care more about having the width outright, which means you're going to play a traditional right winger, which we'll talk about in a little bit, or are you going to put Bruno out there? Or, um, I mean, I don't know. There, there, there are other potential solutions. Uh, but that's where you get the question of when does Casemiro play? When does Amrabat play? When do we use a right winger? Like, that's really the question. Like, those, you've got two spots for three players. Amrabat, Casemiro, and a right winger. Awesome. Okay, so that covers Sofian Amrabat. Uh, I think real quick we'll go into United's you know, other signing in this window, this sort of the end of the window, who is on loan, Sergio Reguilon. He's a left back from Tottenham, used to play for Sevilla, previously with Real Madrid as well. Aaron, we didn't do a deep dive on this. However, both of us have seen quite a bit of Reguilon. He didn't play much last season. Any preliminary thoughts here before I get into a few things that I've sort of had prepared? Yeah, so I obviously don't view the game the same way I did back then, but early in my analytics ventures, I watched a lot of Sergio Regulon at Sevilla um, with the hope that United would sign him for uh, an unfit and or, or a not consistently fit Luke Shaw. They ended up going to sign Alex Tellez, who in my view is much worse than Regulon. The main idea of Regulon's game is he's sort of like an attacking threat left back for possession sides, I think. Um, in particular, he's a very, very fast player, um, and he hits he hits the wing in attacking situations really quickly, um, and then his variety and delivery is pretty good. Um, so he's very good at hitting strikers in transition and getting up the pitch. Um, he has a really good engine. He plays high and wide. This is not like an inverted fullback kind of player like you would have gotten with someone like Kukurea. And in general, I think if you use him to those strengths, he can be very effective. And if you don't, he's probably going to be a pretty average contributor. Um, I don't think he's a bad passer, but I do have questions about him under a press, whether he's a real plus under a press. I think he'll be better than Aaron Wambasaka either way. Um, if the solution is to play Regulon at left back and Diogo Dalo at right back. Um, and then on top of that, I expect to have at least one of Luke Shaw or Tyrell Malasia back in January. Whether he starts over Malasia, I don't know. I don't really think so. If not because Malasia is better, I'm not sure if he's better, but because Malasia is the one who is contracted to the club full time. And I don't think the intention here is to buy Regulon. There's also a break clause in the loan for January. So depending on the state of the fullback's fitness, he might not even last beyond January. And so as a result, I think it's unlikely you see Regulon actually play that much. But I don't think that means that he's a bad signing. I think it just means that United needed someone to fill this position and they got someone to fill this position who has certain upsides in his game that could be valuable. Yeah, so I agree with those thoughts based on what I've seen of him. This is sort of a traditional... Uh, traditional maybe isn't the right word. Ten years ago, Reguilon is the kind of player you would see at top sides playing left back. 
major athlete, lots of ability to create in the final third, Got a, has a good final ball. I asked a few Spurs-oriented content creators who Aaron and I know, basically what they thought of Reguilon, why he didn't pan out at Tottenham. I'm sort of going to summar- summarize their thoughts. Their impression was he's sort of an all-rounded, talented player, uh, but he sort of rushes what he does on the ball, even when he's not necessarily under pressure. And and based on what I know about the player, this sort of lines up with yeah. what I've seen. He's not particularly good under pressure. He's not going to add value under pressure. He wants to be you know an athlete in the open field, covering ground, getting into the final box, into the, getting into the final third, providing service into the box. Um, another thing to keep in mind, he was injured for, re- he seems just to be injury prone, and he also seemed to have a recurring gastrointestinal issue last year that kept him off the pitch as well. So food for thought, for sure. Yeah, a- anything else you want to add there, Aaron? Not really. Um other than maybe how much we're expecting him to play or whether we'd play him. I think I don't want to go into the whole Wambasaka thing again, but I personally would play him. I would see how this goes. I think the upside is you get a player who is very impactful for you in attacking situations, especially with someone like Hoyland coming in. Um, I think the downside is you end up just going back to playing Wambasaka. Um, I don't think Wambasaka is going to be particularly valuable against these upcoming matches. You've got Brighton and you've got Bayern. I know some people think they've got tricky wingers that you play Wambasaka against 1v1, but I think the bigger danger against Brighton is actually playing into their press um, and in particular playing badly into their press. So I would play him and see how it goes, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did not play at all. Yeah, I, if you can break Brighton's press, I think Reguilon is sort of tailor-made to take advantage of the space that that would create, but I also think there's an argument to be made that perhaps... Regulon isn't like a value, like compared to Wambasaka, maybe isn't a huge value add playing out of the press. In which case, if you're going to have trouble playing out of the press, maybe you want to have Wambasaka on the pitch instead. That's just me playing out a hypothetical. I think I agree. I would like to see Regulon play. I think that covers it. Anything else? No, not really. Happy right. with that. So we'll move on to our final uh, topic today which is United's right-wing situation. How did we wind up here? Why is there a situation at right-wing? Anthony was suspended, pending an investigation surrounding a series of criminal charges in Brazil. He will not be coming back anytime soon, as far as can be seen. Beyond that, in a very different situation, there are also question marks surrounding Jaden Sancho's involvement in the squad going forward after he put out a statement in the wake of United's loss to Arsenal, wherein he refuted comments that were made by the coaching staff surrounding his training and how well he trained and his performance in training. And depending on how you read into those comments, perhaps his commitment to training. Um, this puts United in a weird spot. They spent more than $150 million in the last two summers on these two players. One of them will not be playing football for the foreseeable future. And the other one, things are up in the air. Uh, for obviously for very different reasons. These are two very different situations. Aaron, who, who plays right wing for this side? Well, the answer I alluded to earlier was Bruno Fernandes. You bring in Amrabat and then you reshift the midfield to get Bruno Fernandes up uh, in the attack with Mount uh, at number 10. 
And honestly, I think that's a pretty good solution. I think having Mount, Amorbat, and Casemiro in midfield makes you really good defensively. I think it makes you better in possession. I think that negates what you lose. Or sorry, I think that compensates for what you might lose in Anthony's ability out of possession. And then Anthony hasn't really been a factor in possession this season um, in terms of his attacking contribution. And I think you get more out of Bruno in that attacking area. And I think you get more out of Mount in that attacking area. Um, And so I think that's the easiest solution. My other solution is to sort out whatever's going on with Sancho and just play him. Um, By my eye, Sancho had a pretty good start to the season in his cameos. I still think Sancho is sub-elite. I still think Sancho's skill set and style is something that can contribute a lot to United's current attacking setup. Um, and yeah, I mean, those are your two main options. Ahmad might come back soon. Maybe you try Ahmad there. A lot of people have been calling for Facundo Palistri to play there. I don't personally have an interest in seeing that. I just think that I guess I should elaborate on that. That sounds harsh. Um, Ahmad tactically is the closest thing you have to Anthony in this squad. So if you saw Anthony as something that was really important to the team before, then you put Ahmad in now to try to replicate that. And I think I can see the logic behind that. Um, as for Palistri, I don't really think he offers some of the build-up stuff that you need. And I think that despite his prolific ah, prolific is a strong word despite his promising substitute cameos where he dribbles down the right wing and often registers good creative involvement i think a lot of that is a testament to the state of the matches in which he's coming in and how they cover his limitations as a player i don't really think there's much else to his game than what you've seen in those substitute cameos yeah i think that's pretty much it I mean, okay, I guess I guess the roundup is, yeah, you have three options here. Bruno, Sancho, and Ahmad. Yeah, so I, I agree with everything you said there, Aaron. I just want to throw this in there before we continue with this conversation. I don't want anyone to think that we are confusing the situation with Jaden Sancho with the situation with Anthony, because they're so, so different. One is an internal squad thing that, you know, you can work around and resolve. The other is not a footballing thing, and... As a result, not really a negotiation. So, with that in mind... I don't really want to discuss the Anthony situation on this podcast. Um, We created this podcast as a space for us to talk about football. But I will say this. As two people who love this sport and want to talk about it, but also condemn some of the things that Anthony and Mason Greenwood um, have been alleged to do. It is very difficult for us to talk about them on this podcast, being completely ignorant of the, the allegations that they face and the serious nature of those allegations. And so even though we're not going to be discussing those things, I don't want you guys to treat that as uh, a lack of seriousness with which we're approaching them. We're just deciding as a podcast to talk about the football uh, that we can talk about and hope that the situation gets resolved appropriately. I think that's very well put. Okay. We will not be discussing that again unless it becomes relevant. But I'm, I'm glad you said that, Aaron. Moving forward, 
United's right wing situation. I agree. I think the first option is to put Bruno Fernandez out on right wing in some capacity. But like you said, you're losing some stuff there. You're losing some out of possession contribution. You're losing, I think in particular, in possession shape and maybe a little bit of ball retention and an ability to progress down the right by putting Bruno there. So then you ask yourself, okay, what are the alternatives? I think, I really, I don't think reintegrating Jaden Sancho is that difficult. I think it's very possible. A lot of stuff has come out about his attitude, who he is as a person in the wake of these comments. I wouldn't put any stock in those reports, to be honest with you. Whether they're true or not, I do not know. However, this is like prime international break news cycle fodder. Like this is the stuff that the media is going to get out there, whether it, how severe these issues are, whether they're true or not, aren't really key. Uh, I just, I think it would, I would not be that surprised if come a month from now, Sancho is just back as a part of the squad. That, am I saying that's definitely what's going to happen? No, but I think it's, this is definitely a resolvable issue. So I think if you want to use Jaden Sancho at right wing, which I think is a totally feasible answer to this question, I think that's still very much a viable answer. Still very much of a viable alternative. However, there are also some questions with Sancho on the footballing pitch. Specifically, we've seen him play at right wing. I think we've talked about this before. This is a player whose game is predicated on combination play. I'm not sure you're getting the contributions from Bruno, from Wambasaka in combination play to make him really effective. He also isn't left-footed. So does he really solve the issues that Bruno would pose at right wing in, in in his stead. I'm not sure. And that's how you wind up with, like you said, Ahmad, who I think Ahmad should be able to contribute um, when he's healthy at this position. I don't think he really has like a, a lot of upside anymore. Uh, I don't think he, I don't think he's going to be beating a lot of players at primary league level on the ball, which is a big disappointment given who he was at youth level. Um, but based on what I've seen of him at, uh, at championship level, I, I don't think that's a big part of his game. Anyway, I still think you could get, you know, reasonable minutes from him. I don't think the the, the attacking output is going to be a huge drop-off from what you got from Anthony. The other option, like you said, is obviously Facundo Palistri. I basically agree with all of your comments. The only thing I would add is I think there's a lot of questions around what he does out of possession. I've seen him make some huge mistakes out of possession, And I think that's a huge issue, especially when you're losing a player who was a plus out of possession or when you're replacing a player who was a huge plus out of possession. It's a big drop-off. And I'm not convinced that there's really much to be added going forward from Ballistry compared to who he's replacing. Yeah, I mean, okay, basically, I will say this. I think at some point, as much as we've been positive about United's start to the season here, I think you have to sort out all of the different issues that have been occurring off the pitch and assemble a team that's going to consistently be available for the season. And if you're not able to do that, then that will actually derail the season. Um, If players keep getting injured or players keep getting, for whatever reason, suspended or players keep getting... um, If there continues to be turmoil within the squad in terms of you know, alleged turmoil within the squad surrounding training habits or, you know, 
public yeah. statements made about trading habits, whatever it may be. That will be a Go big ahead. problem over the course of the season. However, I don't think this particular suspension needs to be a big problem for United's first team. I think it was already something that would have been worth consideration with Amrabat coming in. Um, I think you can make a yeah. case that the best 11 just has Bruno at right wing um, or just has Sancho at right wing. And so this doesn't have to be a big issue in terms of a footballing predicament for Manchester United. And so I I encourage once again in the in the face of absentees and turmoil in the squad and some of the grim things we've been hearing about the things going on at United not to conflate that with what's been going on in the football sphere which is that United have 6 points from 4 games and there's plenty of Premier League football to play with a lot of talented players in this squad and a lot of good things to look forward to. Yeah, agreed. All right. Real quick, we'll do a no details just so that we leave off on a slightly more positive note. Aaron, do you want to you want to explain what no details is for us? No details. This is the segment where we allow you guys to ask anything you want but with one caveat. The questions cannot be about football. Okay. Aaron, these no details questions are straight from me because I did not ask for questions on the Twitter account. Okay, first question. What is your go-to comfort meal? Comfort meal. Ooh. Um, anything with chicken and rice. Like shredded chicken and rice. So, like, options include chicken shawarma, uh, chicken curry, or like a biryani, or um, souvlaki. All, all good options for a comfort meal. Um, and I want to sit with my fork in front of the TV and watch TV and eat my comfort meal. How about you? I might need one of those after this, by the way. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I'm actually, I've got two. I've got two. Um, my number one is nasi goreng, which is like a, a Indonesian, Malaysian, I think sometimes. You, you've, you've talked about this um, before, yeah. But predominantly, yeah, predominantly Indonesian uh, fried rice dish served with various different foods, but typically chicken. Uh, oh, that totally I falls under. Goreng. That totally falls under yeah, the category I, of what I said. <laughs> that sounds great. Also, like Chinese chicken fried rice. Yeah, anything fried rice, amazing. Yes, but specifically nasi. Um, otherwise, lasagna, which specifically the nice. lasagna that I make when I'm like during the winter, uh, I make lasagna because it's like a nice, heavy comfort food. Yeah, I think those are the main. Those are like the ones I do. Yeah, my more interesting answer would be like noodle soups. So like pho or ramen, um, or even like a Korean pork bone soup. Those would also be comfort foods that I, that I would like, it's cold. Like you said, it's cold outside. Um, and you just want to sit quietly and eat a heartwarming meal. Like that's what I would choose. Okay. Uh, one more. We'll do one more. Uh, Aaron, what, what have you been listening to lately? Uh, Any, any song or, or album recommendation? You have in mind music wise. It doesn't, doesn't have to be something you think people will like. What is what have you been listening to lately? I'm, I'm gonna take a look. Um, I haven't been listening to that much new stuff lately because it's been it's been Welcome Week at university, and I've been volunteering all week, and so I've been listening to whatever music is playing at the events I volunteer in. Um, here I'll say this: so um, there's this extremely random soundtrack. 
called The Living End by Sarah and the Sundays. It, it is it is from the depths of obscurity. They get like less than 500k a month on Spotify. And I got this on my recommended on Spotify in like January. They're like an eight-piece ska band. Um, and they do like, I would describe <laughs> as like, it's not like goofy ska music. It's like light, it's like light rock, I would say. Or like a, like a softer mellower rock listening and whenever i'm going out on my own um i just put this music on in the background in particular when i was just roaming new york like i would i would put my soundtrack on and then just go on the subway and go different places and say what it's called again it's it's called the living end by sarah and the sundays it's totally random and i love it because it's become my like personal individual traveling music that i'd never tell anybody about and it's honestly i don't even know if it's like particularly special it's just it's just become nostalgic music for me and relaxes me whenever i'm trying to wind down i like that answer that was much more obscure than i was expecting uh, i like that one i like that one i feel like I, also I, I, when i don't I'm, have anything so obscure i do listen to relatively obscure music sometimes it's just that when doing something like no details for a podcast that's listened to around the world, I try to pick things that like people in the audience might have heard of or like can relate to. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do not do that. I just I just say whatever I like. I'm like, yeah. It's kind of funny because they're like they they are. It is somewhat obscure. But, I mean, we're also a football analytics podcast with, you know, a growing, generously a growing audience. So, like, we're also quite obscure. So, it's fine. We can, we're we're just promoting other up-and-coming artists is what we're doing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay, sure. I'm, what I'm about to say is not obscure at all. So, my answer is much less interesting. Um... But most of what I've listened to, like, the last week has been the Arctic Monkeys. I think I mentioned the Arctic Monkeys. Oh, you saw them live. Yes. Them. Tell me this about the Arctic a, Monkeys Yeah, I saw concert. them live. Exactly. Yeah, I got to see the Arctic Monkeys live last week. Uh, so I've just been listening to just the Arctic Monkeys since then. Not obscure at all, but, um, yeah. Uh, otherwise, before that, in the weeks leading up to that, I had been listening to a lot of Natalia Laforcade, who is, like, a Mexican artist. She's very famous in Mexico, though, and just generally in Latin America. So, again, not obscure. Maybe to some of our listeners, obscure. But, like, that sort of acoustic uh, light rock, I guess. I don't really know what you would call it, but it is fantastic. Uh, she is incredibly talented. I actually think, Aaron, you might like her. Um, Interesting. you got to drop yeah. me a link after. Yeah, I will. And then, oh, my friend sent me Paint the Town Red by Doja Cat yesterday, and that song is so good. And so I listened to that all morning. <laughs> so I haven't listened that, to Doja Cat's new stuff. I listened to I listened to her first album, I think. Um, the one with Moo on it? Moo, Moo, Moo. You know that song? I don't <laughs> know what you're referring to. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm going to send it to you. Hold on. Oh yeah, so that 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 I assume is from actually she has a lot of albums. So I've I've spoken out of turn here. She does, yeah. But I'm referring. I'd be surprised if you'd listen to her early. Album, no, her I'm. Earliest album, I, I've like, I've listened to Planet Her quite a bit, and I think I've listened to Hot Pink. Yeah, yeah. Planet Her is a good album. Good album. It um, it is. And I'll also send you 
Natalia Lafourcade. Yeah, uh, her. Yeah, so the artist I was talking about earlier, her most famous album is called Asa La Raiz. It's from 2015, so like less than 10 years ago. Um, okay, Aaron, I'm sending you the link. I can give you uh, here for my less obscure answer. I'll give you the last five albums I've listened to on Spotify because um, I've just loaded it up. Um, okay. And so, like and and I will give no explanation for any of this. But okay, songs about Jane by Maroon Five, um, Parallel Lines by Blondie, uh, When the Pawn by Fiona Apple, Slow Hand by Eric Clapton. And... This is a solid mix. <laughs> And Exodus by Bob Marley. And The Wailers. I love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic last one. You really finished strong there. I love Bob it's, Marley. It's really good. You know what? I didn't know what to expect, but it is a really good album. <laughs> the Bob Marley one. You didn't know what to expect? Like, I've always liked Bob, Bob Marley, Marley but I didn't know what a 45-minute Bob Marley album would be like. And it was it was awesome. And also, despite being produced in like the 70s it sounds amazing so yeah yeah well he's just like fantastically talented again not an obscure one from this podcast. yes <laughs> it's okay i gave my obscure pick the next next week your question's gonna be like favorite restaurant i'm gonna be like mcdonald's to make up for the <laughs> obscurity <laughs> I feel like favorite restaurant would not be a fair question because the audience is so global we'll be like when are they gonna go to wherever canada and and have your, your favorite <laughs> restaurant <laughs> yeah that's fair um okay i'll give i'll give one more even though we've been on this for a while and then we were gonna end this podcast in this segment and we're gonna see you all next week and my one more will be fountain baby by and i'm about to butcher this name by amore she's like not that famous i don't think but this album is insanely good if you like hip-hop r&b you're gonna have to send all of these to me afterward yeah yeah you're you're gonna have to send you two of them i'm gonna send you create a whatsapp spam for me and then next time i get a chance i'll listen to them um yeah nice yeah amity actually sent me this album friend of the pod amity hello amity if you're listening okay all right amity stop listening after hearing our music takes (laughs) (laughs) yeah probably um all right. Thanks for listening, everyone. I find myself saying this a lot this year, but there are there are brighter days ahead of us. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details podcast. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor, who you can follow at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and see you next time.